We're continuing with our series of messages from the Gospel of John. I've entitled the series, The Message Became Flesh. And boy, John really got that Jesus came to communicate with us. There's so much to dig into in this gospel, and we've been in this chapter 6 for a bit now, and there's uh, so much to... I'm being a little funny. As we get into it, you'll see why. Uh, it's so much to chew on, uh, so much to, to, to really uh, meditate on and, and think through. Uh, and so before we kind of jump into today's portion of chapter 6, uh, have you ever faced terrible news that you or somebody very close to you has an illness that we can't cure? Uh, in cases like this, we are offered palliative care. They give us medicines that don't fix the problem, but they help it be more bearable uh, as we uh, face the inevitable end of our life. Uh, Through my years as a pastor, I've encountered people in these kinds of situations many times, in heartbreaking situations. I've dealt with teens. uh, I've dealt with middle-aged people. I've dealt with elderly people. It never seems to be easy to deal with things like this. Nobody wants to face a terminal illness. But as I was studying this week's passage, maybe we misunderstand our situation in life. Aren't we all afflicted with a terminal illness to begin with? There's, even if you manage to avoid the terrible diagnoses, you're still going to die. One way or another. None of us is going to live forever. And even the, the longest lived among us, we might break a hundred years, but you won't go much further than that. That's actually the topic Jesus is addressing in today's passage. I've titled today's message, True Food, True Drink. And we're in John chapter 6, verses 41 through 59. Let's start with verse 41. So the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they were saying, isn't this Jesus, Joseph's son, whose father and mother we know? How is he now saying, I have come down out of heaven? I find this very interesting. Of course, again, John is using this term, the Jews. Not to, uh, not, some people say John was some kind of an anti-Semite, uh, which means he would have hated himself because he himself was a Jew. That's not his problem. But he does very much use the voice of the Old Testament prophets calling the whole people of Israel to repentance because he knows that by and large, uh, the leadership, the religious leadership, and uh, by and large, uh, a large portion of the Jewish people have rejected Jesus as what he came to be. So he uses this term broadly to call all the Jews to the appropriate faith in Jesus that they should have had to begin with. But uh, throughout his gospel, there are kind of two groups that are on opposite sides of Jesus. There's disciples and there's the Jews. But actually, the people on this side are all Jews too. All the disciples we're talking about in the Gospel of John are Jews. So, uh, but he, he, he says the Jews, again, and in John we kind of understand that to mean the Jews who were not believing in Jesus. They're grumbling about Jesus. 
It's interesting throughout this chapter, the parallels between this and the feeding of the people of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, There too, God gave them bread from heaven. And there too, they started grumbling. They didn't want the bread God gave them. They wanted meat. They wanted leeks and onions. Uh, They weren't content with what God provided. They wanted something else. Well, the same thing's happening with Jesus. Now, the reason people are so drawn to Jesus is that they have these tremendous messianic expectations that God is going to send the Messiah who is going to uh, rule the nations with an iron rod and he is going to establish the eternal kingdom of God and bring peace throughout all creation forever. And they've already decided how this is going to work. It's going to be a lot like kind of what Moses did. They're going to be delivered from bondage under the oppressive Roman regime. And the Romans are going to be put in their place. And God is going to raise up the people of Israel to govern the whole world under the benevolent leadership of the Messiah. And when they come to Jesus, they are very happy to see that he gave them a bunch of food. They think that's a good start. We're tired of going hungry, and the Romans tax us so much we barely have enough to eat. So yes, let's usher in the messianic kingdom. Food enough for everybody. Nobody goes hungry. The oppression is put to an end, and we have freedom and liberty, and we are now the ones ruling the world. They want all this from their Messiah. But it became very clear that this isn't what Jesus was offering. Every time they try to make him, we already saw this earlier in the chapter, they wanted to take him by force and make him king, so Jesus went away. He refuses to buy into this program they've set for him. And uh, they're not not happy with what he has to say. They want plenty of food, freedom from oppression. Jesus says, this food is just a symbol. I'm talking about something else. I'm talking about something more important than food. Pay attention to what I'm trying to tell you. God Almighty has come to you in the flesh to meet a need that is much greater, much more profound than your need to eat. What can be more important than our need to eat? We can't live without that. Jesus has been saying, no, there's something you need even more than that. Me. Me. But he says nothing about doing the things they wanted him to do. So the response is to grumble. This isn't the bread we wanted. We want meat, leeks, and onions. We want something else. And it's this thing. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. I have, came, I have come to be your sustenance. That's not what they wanted to hear. So they start talking to one another and grumbling about it. Isn't that Jesus? Isn't that Joseph's kid? We know who his parents are. It's Joseph and Mary. They've been here all along. We know exactly where this kid comes from and who he is. Where does he get coming and saying, I've come down from heaven? He's no more celestial than any one of us. I find that that's often the way people approach Jesus. And it's not that Jesus fails to provide compelling evidence for his claims. Jesus has just done miraculous signs before these people that confirm the claims he's making. This isn't just empty talk. But here's what happens. When what Jesus is offering is not what the person who is approaching Jesus is looking for, 
Then you start trying to find ways to dismiss him, to discredit him. Jesus is not celestial. He's not from heaven. He's not some superior come from God directly to us. He's just like you and me. He's, I, we know who his parents are. I think people still do that. They hear that Jesus is this great thing and uh, Jesus can make your life wonderful and he's awesome and they approach Jesus and when they actually start paying attention to what Jesus says, they don't like what they hear. They want Jesus to make them wealthy and to give them a good job and a good house and a great family and to keep them safe from harm and to never suffer. This is what they want from Jesus. And when they come to Jesus, they find out that he says stuff like, you're going to suffer. That he says stuff like, you have to deny yourself. You cannot live for yourself. You have to die. You have to take up a cross and carry it every single day of your life. You cannot love your father, your mother, your wife, your husband, your daughter, your brother, your sister, your son. You can't love yourself more than me. When people run into that kind of stuff, they say, wait a minute, that's not what I wanted. And it isn't that Jesus isn't providing compelling reasons to believe he is who he says he is. It's that we don't want what he's offering. And the next thing to do is then just try to just discredit him. Jesus is nothing. He's just a guy like anybody else. He died on a cross. That resurrection stuff, that's nonsense. Yeah, all his closest friends were willing to die rather than deny that fact. But they were just zealots of some sort. They were deceived somehow. I don't know why exactly. But surely he was just a regular guy like you and me. And all this talk he says about judging the living and the dead and about being the only option for life eternal, we can dismiss all of that because we just say Jesus isn't who he says he is. We'll be done with him. He's not what we wanted. I have a question from these verses. When Jesus failed to say what they wanted to hear, the crowd started to grumble and reason ways to dismiss him. How do we continue to do the same today? Let's keep reading verse 43. Jesus answered and said to them, Don't grumble with each other. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It has been written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard from the Father has learned and has learned comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. This one has seen the Father. So Jesus responds to this grumbling and says, Stop grumbling. And he's trying to help them understand what is going on here. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So we cannot draw near to Jesus unless the Father draws us to him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is talking about resurrection. He's talking about a final day, a terminal point to this age, this uh, reality in the universe of the way things work there is a, a day at which we will say this is the last day and things will be eternally changed throughout the cosmos and on that day 
Jesus is promising that he will raise those of us who have already died up to enjoy eternal life with him. Now, here's what Jesus is reminding us about. None of us finds God. We don't scour the earth looking for him and find him somewhere. Think about it. How did Abraham find God? Did he go looking and finally in some remote, hidden corner, some cave way out in the middle of nowhere, he found God? No, Abraham was just going about his business when God said, Hey, Abraham, come with me. Let me take you somewhere. And Abram said, Sure, why not? Jacob was scheming and doing everything he could to get ahead and everything went wrong and he ends up having to run away from his brother who wants to kill him. He's not looking for God. And he stops at Bethel to sleep and God gives him a vision. He stands in heaven. There's a ladder connecting him and the earth and his angels are constantly up and down that ladder. Jacob wakes up and says, I didn't know it, but God is right here. He didn't find God. God found him. Moses had tried to deliver Israel his own way and it was an absolute fiasco. He ends up running for his life and spends 40 years hiding out in the wilderness. He's given up on it. And God finds Moses and says, I want you to go back. I want you to get these slaves out of Egypt. They didn't find God. God found them. And here's what Jesus is saying. I have come to you. God is trying to communicate with you. And only a fool ignores God when he's trying to say something to you. And what the Father is trying to do with you is to draw you to me. Some people read this in a deterministic way. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I think everyone would agree that that's a biblical statement. We don't have in ourselves what is necessary to come to faith in Jesus. We need God to invite us. We don't find God. He finds us. The question, the debate is, who all is the Father drawing? Does he only draw a few people? Or does he issue the invitation and draw everyone and there are some who respond and some who don't? I think as we continue reading, uh, Jesus seems to indicate it's the second thing I said there. That it's that God is inviting you all and if you actually pay attention and receive what he's trying to tell you, then you will come to me and have life. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah. It's been written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Not just a few, everyone. God, and Jesus is saying, this is what the prophets were telling you was going to happen. God is trying to teach you something. The Father is drawing you to me so that you may have life. And you're grumbling about it. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who hears the Father and learns There's the part we mess up. God calls us, but not everybody is willing to learn what God's saying. Not everybody is willing to be taught. But if you're willing to learn from the Father, 
you're going to come to Jesus. There's nowhere else you're going to end up. There's a parenthetical note here. I'm not sure if that's Jesus or if John, as the writer, is inserting this as a parenthetical thought. Not that anyone has seen the Father. Yes, the Father is calling us all to Jesus, but we haven't actually seen him clearly. Our perception is veiled. It's veiled in the very incarnation, in the flesh of Christ itself. It's veiled in so many ways. Our grasp of the Father is partial at best. Except... The one who is from God, Jesus, he's seen the Father. He knows everything there is to know about the Father. Jesus is trying to let them know that God is giving them an opportunity. And rather than receive the opportunity and receive eternal life, they're grumbling about it. I didn't want eternal life, God. I wanted freedom from the Romans. I wanted more bread. Do you realize what kind of an idiot it takes to prefer that over eternal life? And yet that's the way we react to God. He offers us something so much better than anything we had in mind that it's not even on our radar. But because God won't give us what we think we want, we don't want what he has to offer. I have a question from these verses. Jesus reminded the crowd that God wants to teach us all so that if we learn what he is teaching us, we may believe in Jesus and have eternal life. Why do you think we struggle so often to make hearing God and learning from him a priority in our lives? Let's keep reading. Verse 47. Truly, truly, I tell you, The one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate at the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread coming down from heaven so that anyone might eat from it and not die. I am the bread that lives, the one coming down from heaven. If anyone should eat from this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I will give for the life of the cosmos is my flesh. Jesus keeps instructing them. And again, he prefaces this with truly, truly. Every time Jesus starts a sentence that way, you need to pay attention to what he says after that because he's basically saying, I'm telling you the absolute God's honest, solemn truth of the matter. This is an important truth you need to pay attention. The one who believes has eternal life. If you put your faith in me, you have eternal life because I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Uh, Partaking of me is to partake of life eternal. And he keeps contrasting what he has brought with what Moses brought or what God brought through Moses. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. They all died. This miraculous thing, this miraculous provision, nobody went hungry for 40 years. They didn't have to worry about food. But they died. That was not true provision. In fact, all but two of that whole generation died outside of faith. 
They refused to put their faith in God. And that's why they spent 40 years until they all died off because God said, if you don't trust in me, you're not coming into the promised land. Yeah, they had bread to eat every day. But in the end, it didn't amount to any, uh, making any significant difference for them. In contrast to that, this bread coming down from heaven is here so that anyone might eat from it and not die. And again, he says, anyone. God's desire is for every one of us to come to this faith. He's not excluding anybody. Anyone might eat from it and not die. I am the bread that lives, the one coming down from heaven. Anyone eats this bread, he's going to live forever. You might say, okay, you're promising eternal life that centers in you. If we put our faith in you, if we believe in you, you give us eternal life. How do you do that? How does that work? Well, he explains. And he'll flesh this out further as the gospel goes on. The bread I'm going to give for the life of the cosmos is my flesh. Most translators there say the world. I, I consistently translate that Greek word, cosmu, uh, or cosmos, as cosmos. Because in the ancient world, yes, that's the world, word you would use for world. But in the ancient mindset, the world is all there is. The world is divided into the waters, the land, and the heavens. And the world encompasses all of that. We today use the term world to mean this particular planet. And we know that there's a whole lot more than that. And when in the Bible we're using this word cosmos, we mean everything. Not just this planet. The whole of creation. How is Jesus going to rescue all of creation? He is going to give up his flesh. There's something very literal, even though there's highly metaphorical language throughout this passage. There's, there's a literal core to it all. When Jesus says, the bread I'm giving up for the life of the cosmos is my flesh, he literally means my body. The reason God had to become flesh, the word had to become flesh, is that he couldn't just appear to be human. He had to be human to be the perfect sacrifice for the sin that humanity imposed on the world. We brought sin into creation. And only a human offering himself up as a willing sacrifice, a perfect human, could be the appropriate atonement for the sin of the world. So Jesus literally had to give up his flesh to be tortured and killed so that in willingly giving himself up and taking upon himself in his flesh the fullness of the wrath of God against all sin, he might extinguish the claim of sin and death on anybody who believes. How can Jesus offer eternal life? He paid for it with his body. He gave up his life to purchase it. So the Jews were quarreling with one another, saying, how can this guy give us his flesh to eat? So they hear that. My flesh is the bread I give up for the life of the cosmos. 
And again, they think they're being really cute and clever and twisting his words and uh, they're going to twist them in a way that uh, proves that Jesus is talking nonsense. How can this guy give us his flesh to eat? And obviously, even pagans uh, would turn up their nose at the idea of cannibalism. Even among Romans and Greeks, that was considered absolutely barbaric. And obviously for a Jew who was so obsessed with kosher, the very thought of eating human flesh was absolutely abhorrent. How can this guy give us his flesh to eat? Now, Jesus hadn't said that yet. And they're clearly twisting his words. But I love how Jesus responds. He leans into this and says, okay, you guys pay attention to what I'm saying. I'm going to keep, I'm going to push this metaphor and you guys figure it out. Stop looking for excuses to misunderstand. Pay attention to what I'm saying. You know, as, as a pastor who preaches every Sunday, I run into this often that I say something in a sermon that somebody takes offense at. And uh, I, I love that when Jesus has said something that the people are kind of misunderstanding or twisting, he doesn't back off from it. He says, stop looking for reasons to not pay attention. Dig in and hear what I am saying. Understand what is being said. Don't just throw up an objection because there's some particular phrase you didn't want to hear. Listen to what's being said. And Jesus leans into it. Truly, truly, I I tell you, if you don't eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Well, Jesus didn't back off from that at all. You know, I've seen TV shows, movies where they quote these verses. Vampire shows like to use this phrase. They think it's really cute to quote Jesus saying this. And it makes the whole point of his pushing into this metaphor. Uh, Pay attention to what I'm talking about. Now here's here's something. Uh, Jesus is pushing this point and he uses this messianic title, Son of Man, the one to whom the Ancient of Days delivers the kingdom that will be forever. If you don't eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, now you talk about eating flesh, that's bad enough, but to a Jew, drinking blood? They wouldn't even eat regular meat they would eat without draining all the blood out of it. And Leviticus made that very clear. Their laws for eating food were very clear, and God had made from the very earliest days of his revelation to Israel, made it very clear that he was going to use blood as a symbol for life. The reason Israel was not to eat any meat with blood is that the life is in the blood, and the blood belongs to God. The only place for it is the altar. Blood is life. Life is God's alone. There is no life anywhere else, and nobody else controls it. It's God's. Now, even though, and Jesus is being a little complicated here, and I think he's deliberate sometimes in saying, you need to stop looking for excuses and dig in and try to figure out what I'm talking about. 
There is a literal aspect to all of this. His flesh literally has to be given up on the cross. That's not metaphorical. He's literally going to suffer torture and die. And he is going to pour out his blood. And if blood is a symbol for life, Jesus is going to endure the horror of the cross all the way until his dying breath. And he is going to pour out his life on the cross. He is going to die. And in that death, he is going to drag with him the sins of the world into the grave. He is going to drag death itself into the grave. If you don't eat and drink of that, there's no life. The cross is not a metaphor for something. The cross is the literal payment for the sin of the world and there is no chance at life eternal apart from that cross no other way you can try to be a good person God doesn't care you've already messed that up you're not going to fix it he knows what you need you need the flesh and blood that was laid out on that cross for you That is the only thing you need. And if you look to anything else, you will not get it. But if you eat of that flesh, if you drink of that blood, you have eternal life. You have the promise from Jesus of resurrection. That's why he says, my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. You know, you think you eat because if you don't eat, you're going to die. You think you drink because you think if I don't drink, I'm going to die. Guess what? You can eat and drink all you want. You're still going to die. You haven't fixed the problem. That's not true food. That's not true drink. You need something else. Jesus says, here it is right here. True food, true drink. You eat this, you live forever. The one who eats my flesh, verse 56, and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Jesus explains a bit of the mystery that takes place. When we receive what he did for us on the cross and when we partake of that, we put our faith in him and say, you came to give me life and it may not be what I wanted from you, but I will take what you're offering. Give me what you came to give me. When we do that, Jesus says that you come to dwell in Jesus. Your life becomes surrounded by him. You belong to him. You are now immersed in him. And guess what? It's reciprocal. And he is in you. That's the pattern. From the very beginning, God said to Israel, you will be my people and I will be your God. There is a mutual belonging God is inviting us into. We are his and he is ours. God is inviting us to a reciprocal, eternal, loving relationship where we remain in him 
And he remains in us. He's not going anywhere. He says another comparison. Verse 57, just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so also the one who eats me, that one also will live because of me. In the incarnation, when the, the word became flesh and assumed fully humanity, his human existence was dependent on the Father. His life was dependent on the living Father who sustained his living. He says, in the same way, when you partake of me, you're going to live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Unlike the ancestors who ate and died, the one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things in synagogue, teaching in Capernaum. It's interesting that he doesn't use the definite article there. He doesn't say these things in the synagogue. Uh, he says, he said these things in synagogue. And what, he, what I think John is trying to say is, this is the context in which this teaching is taking place. Jesus is sitting on the seat of Moses, expounding Torah to the people of Israel. He is saying this in synagogue. The Father is inviting you to come Put your faith in the one he has sent to give you life. I have a final question. Jesus said, he alone is true food, true drink, able to grant true and eternal life to any who believe in him. What things other than Jesus do we expect to sustain our lives? And how do they prove to be false? False. How is Jesus different? Is there such a thing as true food, true drink? If we think of these as sources of life, we might say, no, we're all going to die. Even the tastiest delicacies, even the most refreshing libations ultimately prove to be nothing more than palliative. We're still going to age and die. What if God actually wanted us to have life eternal? What if he wanted our lives here to be full and abundant and uh, meaningful and purposeful? And not only that, if he wanted that to be something that could continue eternally. Well, that's what Jesus is saying God is up to. It's about so much more than just what we can accomplish in a few decades here on earth. That's why God sent, the Father sent the Son. That's why God Almighty took on flesh and went to the cross. He came to us in the mystery of the incarnation to offer us true food, true drink. He's that true sustenance if we will heed the Father, if we will allow ourselves to be taught by Him, there's only one place we will end up, the feet of the cross.
the feet of Jesus. And once we've arrived there and we look up in faith, we receive life forever. Let me say a word of prayer. Jesus, thank you that you have offered us things we can't even comprehend. I, who knows what we're talking about when we talk about eternal life? We have no idea. And so many times we don't even know what true living looks like right now. We're so often deceived by uh, red herrings and things that promise great things and ultimately end up in nothing. And Lord, we're so confused and lost. Thank you that you are the God who reaches out to us. You are the Father who teaches us all. Lord, give us ears to hear. Help us to not only hear, but to learn what you are teaching us. Draw us to yourself. Draw us to Jesus. Give us life, abundant and eternal. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.